a special <clears throat> and wonderful opportunity. have the chance to practice like this. In a beautiful natural setting. In a sanctuary that has been consciously consecrated and intending, intended for this kind of transformative practice. What's quite special about this sort of a place is, for example, we have a, at least some of you are staying longer, a month, month, be with ourselves, to listen in to our experience and illuminate it. With contemplation, with deep receptivity, with inquiry, with cultivation of a the wholesome qualities of the heart. But we have a lot of opportunity to find our own rhythm. I, I love long retreats. In my life I've had the uh, good fortune to, to spend two a year long silent retreats where I just formed my own schedule. And here we have a light schedule where there's a lot of opportunity for you to listen in to your body time, to your energy, and and freedom to, to... to practice and inquire at the pace, at the rhythm, with the style that feels right. This morning, uh, I began reflecting on the preciousness and beauty and efficacy of the Buddha's teaching on Anapanasati, the Anapanasati Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out. interest in breath this happened early on in the Buddha's life in fact that was uh, as most of you or many of you recall who are familiar with the Buddha's teachings that was uh, an important turning point when he was in the midst of the taking the ascetic practices to an extreme. He was also interested in the breath then too, but he was, remember he was starving himself, really testing the limits of life, endurance, energy, starving himself. And then he, he even practiced retention of breath, stopped himself from breathing. 
in three different ways. I mean, it was with tremendous energy and willpower just saying, well, what happens if I just don't breathe? And he would extend that until burning pains would slice through his head and through his body. He got right to the the edge of uh, death. He already was interested in the breath, but (laughs) knew that it was connected to life. But remember, he was so weak from fasting, from his ascetic practices, that he would try to urinate, he would fall down would scratch his skin and it would peel off. Hair would come up by the roots. Feel his stomach, he would then feel the backbone. He knew he had tremendous willpower and a certain degree of equanimity, but it was... He knew this wasn't freedom. He just asked the question... Ask the question. Very important. My favorite part of it. He asked the question. Who did he ask to? He asked to the heart. He asked the question, might there be another way? Might there be another way? Because I've taken this crushing, well-powered, overpowering the body and sensations and feelings. I have tremendous, certain amount of steadiness, but there wasn't ease and freedom. Might there be another way? Asking. And then the heart presented an answer. We should remember that, that our, this, it is said by the great saints and sages that our heart is a treasure trove. All the great thousand dharmas right here within this heart. But through our heart being confused and entangled and shaped by the moods and thoughts, we then project out the good stuff over there or only when I get rid of this. We haven't truly learned how to access the treasures of wisdom, compassion, joy, courage, equanimity. So in the striving bodhisattva, Gautama asked, might there be another way the image, childhood memory came. It was a pleasant memory. In the midst of all this ascetic practice, exhaustion, he had a pleasant memory of when he was young at his father's, who was a chief or some sort of ruler of the Sakyan kingdom was having some sort of festival day. He had withdrawn. Viveka, he just pulled back. This is a Viveka. We're just withdrawing from our everyday concerns, activities. As a child, he withdrew from the festivity, the speeches, the feasts, the conversations, the meals, and sat under a rose apple tree. And with the innocence of a young child and the curiosity, his attention went inward, just to the body, sitting, breathing. And he naturally, spontaneously entered a deep, Luminous, peaceful, calm. He didn't have the word for it, but later he realized it was first jhana. All these years later, he realized that that was 
It was just calm. And he knew this is the way. This is the way. But he realized he couldn't practice that way. He was in such an emaciated state. He needed to to strengthen himself, nourish himself. So he received a meal. And, and just at the right moment, a generous-hearted spirit, Sujata, a young maiden, saw this emaciated ascetic with this extraordinary gleam in his eyes and must have thought he looks like he could use a meal. But she wanted to, she, she was moved. Moved. The spirit moved her. It's interesting. It's a way, another way of using the word breath. She was moved to make an offering. And the Buddha, who was moved by the heart, because before, there's no way he would accept an offering from a young maiden, and it was some kind of milk rice, which is like, the ice cream of the day. And he accepted it with confidence. He knew he needed to be strengthened. His fellow ascetics abandoned him for being a slacker. But he didn't worry. He strengthened himself. He realized it wasn't a question of conquering form crushing form, crushing Mother Earth, crushing the body, stopping ourselves from breathing. There was an acceptance of nourishment, of the healing power of breath, of the unifying power of honoring this moment rather than trying to conquer it, crush it, And so he developed this mindfulness of breathing practice. And then he gave this teaching that I touched on this morning of the 16 steps, the four tetrads, that each fulfilled a, an aspect of attention that the Buddha recognized was important. Attention to the body, attention to feelings, attention to the heart, or attention to awareness, and attention to dharmas, to principles of contemplation. And um, I just wanted to, to read you tonight that that was not just like a one-off teaching that the Buddha just you know forgot about. Thought, oh yeah, he did a lot of great teachings. Let's move on to the next one. And in this particular teaching, it's called the Ichanangala Sutta. Ichanangala Sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One was staying at Ichanangala in the Ichanangala Forest Grove. And he addressed the monks, I wish to go into seclusion. Even the Buddha needed a retreat. Not easy running communities. Monks, I wish to go into seclusion for three months. I am not to be approached by anyone at all except for the one who brings alms food. As you say, Lord, the monks responded to him, and no one approached the Blessed One except for the one who brought alms food. Then the Blessed One, having emerged from seclusion after a passing of three months, addressed the monks. So, disciples, if wanderers of other sects ask you, by means of what dwelling, friends, did Gotama, the contemplative, mostly dwell during the rain's residence. You, thus asked, said the Buddha, should answer them in this way. It was by means of the concentration of mindfulness of breathing that the Blessed One mostly dwelled. 
And then he went through the 16 steps. Mindful I breathe in, mindful I breathe out. Discerning that I breathe in long or discerning that I breathe out long. Short breath, discerning. I will breathe sensitive to the entire body. I will breathe calming the entire body. He went through all of the steps which I'll touch in again to tonight. And remember the last four. I will breathe in focusing on impermanence. Or breathe out, focusing on impermanence. Or breathe in, contemplating dispassion. Breathe out, contemplating dispassion. Breathe in, contemplating cessation. Breathe out, contemplating cessation. I will breathe in, contemplating letting go. Breathe out, contemplating letting go. Then the Buddha says this, for whatever one, rightly speaking, would call a noble dwelling, a Brahma dwelling, a Tathagata, thus come one dwelling, it would be the concentration of mindfulness of breathing, that that person would rightly call a noble dwelling, a Brahma dwelling, a Tathagata, thus come one dwelling. Those who are learners who have yet to attain the heart's desire, who stay resolved on the unexcelled security from bondage. When this meditation of mindfulness of breathing is developed and pursued, it leads to the ending of suffering, the ending of outflows. Those who are arahats, whose outflows are ended, who have reached fulfillment, done the task, laid down the burden, attain the true goal, totally destroy the fetter of becoming, who are released. When the concentration of mindfulness of breathing is developed and pursued by them, it leads to a pleasant abiding here and now. It leads to mindfulness and alertness. So, whatever one rightly speaking would call a noble dwelling, a Brahma dwelling, a Tathagata dwelling, it would be this mindfulness of breathing that they could speak rightly and call this noble dwelling, Brahma dwelling, Tathagata dwelling. not only in the Buddha's own awakening, not only in the turning point that led him to the path of realizing it's not just getting out of the world, it's embracing and illuminating this world of experience. Mindfulness of breathing, And even though it was very important in his own night of awakening, even in his three-month retreat, he emphasized not only in his practice, but in sharing it. So just encourage ourselves. This is a profound practice. There's something... Something about the breath. At the time of the Buddha, a living being was called a being that breathes. Life was connected to breath. Like the first precept, panatipata. Pana is prana. So 
breathing beings, not to harm breathing beings. In Latin, the word spiritus means breath. Spirare, breathe. In English, we use the word to to move, to spirit away. Or the spirit moves, feeling moved. Or that person has spirit. What is that? That person has an energy, noble quality, vitality. Yet the word inspire means to breathe in. Inspire, expire. The old French, inspire, Latin, inspirare, to breathe or blow into. It was originally used of a divine or supernatural being in the sense of imparting a truth or an idea to someone, to be inspired. It's as if something breathed in, an idea. To be inspired, we find something that moves us. The breath in the Buddhist teaching is called the movement element, the vayodhatu, that which moves us. In the Christian tradition, is called the Holy Spirit, that which moves us. What's the hungry ghost? Not the Holy Ghost. The hungry ghost, when we're moved by agitation, worry, aversion, Confusion. But happen, what happens when we're moved by compassion, moved by joy, moved by serenity? the 16 steps, we've, we, we've passed it out to everyone in the chanting sheets just to and just encourage one to, from time to time, familiarize yourself. Four sets of four. First four with the body. Second four about feeling. Third four about the heart about awareness itself. The fourth about dharmas. The Buddha spoke as to how these 16 steps fulfill the foundations of enlightenment, the foundations of mindfulness, the factors of enlightenment that lead to knowledge and deliverance. So receiving our body, exploring a long breath, especially when we're disconnected or lost, a long breath can really help us return. A long breath helps us remember that that we're surrounded, at least in this lovely forest, by an ocean of vitality. In a long in-breath, we're receiving that vitality and a long, slow out-breath, that vitalizing breath energy, that vitalizing spirit can soothe and ground and align the body.
One can do a few long, slow breaths and then just allow the breath to just observe how it naturally softens, perhaps shortens. Being with the breathing and just knowing, letting it be very simple, knowing if there's breathing in, knowing if there's breathing out. Not making a big mission out of it. That wisdom faculty that just knows, ah, breathing in. It's discerning, breathing out. Then allowing the being with the breathing, the sensations of the body breathing, allowing it to be blessed by awareness. Sometimes that's called the short breath when our attention is with the breathing in one part of the body. As we receive a part of the body, when awareness, undistorted, kind, patient, sustained, gentle awareness touches the sensation of the body, the vibration quickens. and becomes more subtle. It's purified. The mind is steadied by being with the body, breathing, but the body is comforted, blessed. The energy begins to shift as it's welcomed by the mind. And then this third step, a very important step, And from just knowing the long breath, knowing the short breath, the Buddha introduces a different word. He introduces one trains. I shall breathe in experiencing or sensitive to the whole body. So he's encouraging us to... And here we're we're learning how to develop a facility for understanding what focus is and what it is for the mind to expand. To notice what's in the periphery. We can focus on our nostril or on our hands, but also the lens of awareness can widen. We can notice our whole body right now. It's not a question of trying to feel it in a certain way, but what happens if we're noticing our whole body as we breathe in. The breathing in and out is a little more in the periphery. But we're still connected to the sense of the whole body, that sensation, as one breathes in and as one breathes out. So one's widened the field. And as one widens the field, as one sense the whole of the body, one might notice that parts of the body is more out of balance, or constricted, or dull, or distant. Then the attention can, and then then it becomes a dance. One can then focus in on that part that's more tense, or dull, or out of balance, breathing into that area. And as one breathes out, one can soften, widen, and allow that part of the body to be connected to and blessed by the rest of the body. This whole first tetrad is, a, is about healing. It's about learning how the Buddha talked about cultivating a pleasant abiding in the here and now. Especially in a world that we live in now with all the challenges, all the tensions, all the stresses. To have a practice that as good as we can is never perfect and we all have all different challenges and illnesses and limitations in terms of our age or body situation. But this practice of learning to be sensitive to the whole body and then the step for learning to calm the whole body is the Buddha teaching us how to, as well as we can, unify the body with the heart, with the mind that thinks. This allows us to become more resilient, 
and able to do what needs to be done. Able to truly take a holiday, a holy day. I spent, uh, many of you knew, I was uh, after typhoid fever in Thailand. Then for about a decade I was quite sick. I didn't die, but I was very sick. And for three of those years I was pretty much lying down 95% of the time or almost all the time. Except to have to sit up to try to eat something or go to the toilet. I was lying down. A lot of internal inflammation, bleeding, discomfort, exhaustion. But this practice of uh, doing lying down, breathing in and out, when you're really tired, that long and short breath, sometimes we get contracted into a way of breathing that's limited. And just as when the Buddha asked, might there be another way, we can sometimes ask our body, how would you like to breathe? And when I was really tired, sometimes I was almost too tired to breathe. And to try to do long breaths to oxygenate the body, I didn't have the strength to do it. But when my body, sometimes when I'm really tired, when I give my body permission to breathe in the way it wants to do, it'll do really shallow breaths, quietly, but a little quicker. It takes almost no energy, but the, it's like an in, out, in, out. Really shallow when I'm so little energy, so tired. The body will... It's learning to be with our body and, and, and let it. To me, that's what this long, short breath is about. It's about learning to allow our body to breathe in a way that's, that brings it ease. And then using our attention to focus on anywhere that's not so well. So when I was lying down and sick, all the inflammation, all the discomfort, it's not hard to find it. There it right is. But then as you breathe in, notice that. Breathing out, noticing that. But then, from time to time, widening, especially on that out-breath, letting the ground hold one up. Or if one's sitting, letting the chair and floor hold one up as one widens the awareness. Then all those areas that were uncomfortable, distressed, twisted, sluggish, as one widens then the awareness is holding the whole body within it. And those different parts and currents and channels that weren't connecting have a chance to connect with one another. By allowing the body to be bathed and embraced by awareness, it allows the elements, the earth element, the fire heating element, the vibratory element, the water element, it allows them to homogenize, it allows them to balance. It's like on a beach. When Tanisha and I take a little holiday from our hermitage in South Africa up in the mountains of KwaZulu-Natal, we'll drive down north of Durban to the beach, beaches of Mshloti. And sometimes by the end of the day with people partying, there's all kind of tracks and people who shouldn't, but they do, down there with their vehicles and there's all sorts of tracks and debris, prints, signs of agitation. But in the morning, after a night of the waves coming in and out, in and out, in and out, those trillions of sand grains are all smooth to this beautiful uniformity. Ekakata is what the Buddha called unification. There's a trillion grains of sand, but somehow they're unified. 
Our body is made up of thousands, millions, trillions of parts and cells and currents and channels. They get all because of our moods and agitations and responsibilities and illnesses disconnected. And the Buddha taught us a way through that the breath element, a long breath, a short breath, a learning to give our permission, self-permission to breathe easily and working with attention and then training ourselves to widen the attention so that little by little we're coaxing the body into awareness, consciously calming the body. And it's just nice to to be able to just to develop some skill. So we have, that's one of the blessings. And that second tetrad that comes out of the first, breathing in and out, experiencing joy. Not just with mindfulness of the breath, but just whatever we happen to be doing, just notice sometimes if, if it's not joy, it's because we're trying to get something done or we're trying to get to some kind of goal. What happens in a moment if we just savor and appreciate the moment? The joy of being awake. Even the sensations when they're not pleasant, if those sensations at least most of the time. Yes, sometimes things can be so intense, okay, it's just we have to try to bear it. But so much of the time, at least in my experience, we've overlooked the training of feeling. We're not aware that actually that's something we can cultivate, a quiet, enjoying a savoring. That, that was built on that relaxing the whole body. Already a kind of joy can begin to arise, but then we can consciously enjoy as we breathe in and out. And that's an active savoring, enjoying. And if we step back, all of these Four steps in each one always leads to a widening and a relaxing. So breathing with joy, as you relax, it just becomes contentment. Being at ease. It's called sukha. Breathing in and out, or whatever we happen to be doing. Is it possible in that moment, this moment, to breathe and be at ease. It's like this, being content. And then noticing that seventh step, breathing in and out, it's called experiencing, it's called here mental activity or jitta sankara. It's just noticing what's triggering us, being aware of the thoughts, I'm, I'm not. In the interviews, it's been wonderful how much uh, insight there is, how much noticing of what's moving us, what's coming up. And the very noticing it already, already is quite an important part of the what leads to the calming of jitta sankara, calming of that mental activity. Just noticing the wanting to get still or the wanting to get done. Or sometimes the the deep sankara of I just can't stand it. I just can't stand it. But to hear that and just in hearing it, we can practice learning not to add to the agitation. And the great calmer of jitta sankara is just kindness. Just allowing, 
giving space to. And that third tetrad about breathing in and out, experiencing the heart, or being aware of awareness. And what's wonderful about these practices is that no matter how much a failure that we think our practice is, oh gosh, I'm Kitty Sora, I'll never get past the, the first tetrad. You know, this is all advanced course, this no, that's why I'm, and I'm grateful to Venerable Analio for pointing out to me that in the time of the Buddha they would, they would do, from his research, do all of these tetrads just in the sense, a space of a sitting, a short sitting. Yes, one can focus and deepen in different aspects of different ones. But there's something important about just touching into them all in a fairly short period of time just to calm the body, to brighten the heart and calm the reactivity to feeling. And in being aware of awareness, even if our heart is full of activation, maybe there's all kind of activation going on. Somebody's noticing that activation. What registers the activation? What's aware of the restlessness, the distress, the sense of it's just too difficult? So we're not trying to get rid of, but just noticing the the matrix the ground. It's a turning inward. Noticing the heart. And when it says gladden the heart, this is a quiet joy. Just even the awareness of awareness has within it a joyfulness, a quiet joy, just to be aware. And notice what's shaping the heart. And just for moments to practice letting what's shaping the heart be recognized as that, as a pattern. Can we just free the heart to know that's just a pattern? In the sense of me doing it, me meditating, me making progress, or me backtracking. I was progress yesterday and backtracking today. We can even see that as just a pattern in the heart. We can realize that that's moving through the heart. That the heart itself, the knowing, the listening, is prior to that, is more fundamental. And finally, just taking the time, even if we are intent on a jhana project, and that's, it's good to deepen our capacity to be composed. But somehow we have the idea that if we do some uh, contemplation of change, that, that that somehow knocks us out doesn't knock us out. It ensures that our composure is not just dazed. It's not just a peaceful fogginess. That our presence is knowing. Breathing in and out, we can just be aware of breath changing body change, sounds, the sounds of the Dharma talk, 
touching consciousness and dissolving. But those sounds are interwoven with our own sensations of sitting and our own impressions. And so this actual experience is a an incredible, ever-changing flow, tapestry of sights and sounds and impressions, the movement of attention, all happening within the heart, all shimmering within unawareness. But as we allow, in a moment, if we really allow the recognition of the implication of this change. How can our body be a certain way? We, we, we sense it expanding, contracting, shimmering. Our feelings, the qualities of pleasing, neutrality, and displeasing are also shifting. The perceptions as we just notice perceptions of sounds and absence of sounds and in-breath and out-breath, perceptions changing every moment. If that really sinks into our heart, then this idea that we can capture something that we can free, that we can hold on to a success, that we can just live in a place of being appreciated and praised. That that happy feeling is enduring. Being engrossed and intoxicated by that naturally dissipates when we start to really take into our being this flowing, ever-changing. That leads to dispassion. We notice sounds ending, breaths ending, moments ending, periods ending, days beginning and ending. Especially thoughts. All these thoughts that separate me from you and here from there and being good and better and worse. So we start to see those thoughts like bubbles keep dissolving. And it leads to this last step of patinisaga, a beautiful word in the Pali language that means giving back. That all this distress, all this confusion has come from claiming something, thinking something was me, mine, permanent, solid, learning how to breathe in and out, giving back, letting go, and resting in what was already here. We chanted at the beginning of the session the qualities of the Dharma, Sandittiko akaliko ehi pasiko, that this ever-present deathless nature is always here and now. Sandittiko akaliko means it's timeless. The sense of a good time or a bad time, or a lot of time or a little time, all those are concepts that arise and cease within a timeless, deathless, unmoving suchness. It's called akaliko. And this next word, ehi pasiko, this true nature. Ehi means come. Pasiko means come see. Our deepest true heart and nature, its arms are open. It's inviting us. Come. You don't need a special pass. It's always here, only blocked through this clinching. So practicing, giving ourselves permission to practice, letting be, 
letting go, resting. And when we can't let be and let go and the mind is rebelling, then we can practice listening to the sounds of the world. Knowing that is jitta-sankhara, patternings, being kind and patient, noticing them changing, and little by little we will have moments of dispassion, realizing that however much racket is in the heart, shining through it all is a ground where all things merge, what the Buddha called the deathless dharma, the peaceful, the refuge the true nature. So may we trust this body and mind, just as the Buddha asked, might there be another way? Can we ask into the silence of our heart, what is this? And illuminate with freshness, beginning again, and allow this uh, wonderful medicine of the Buddhist teachings to uh, little by little guide us home to where we've always already been. So thank you for your attention uh, this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.